We are speaking with the one and only Mike Score of the Flock of Seagulls. And, and to me, just an absolute thrill because you, you, you can't have grown up going through the 80s and not been affected by the Flock of Seagulls. Uh, Mike, as we say in Montreal, bonjour. But thank you for those memories because we remember the hair. We remember the song. We remember the video. You were it, man. You were it. It was good for a while. Yeah, <laughs> I had the hair. We had the videos. We had the look, and uh, yeah, amazingly, it's still going on. You know, so we're it's happy, happy days. Let me just before we get into string theory, the the latest album. Let me just quickly ask you: How important was video to the band? If MTV hadn't existed, could Iran and the rest of it gone through radio and had the same impact, or was it really the visual and MTV and and the other? You know. How important was that? Well, you know, looking looking back at that time, yeah. when, before we ever got a deal or anything like that, we kind of realized how important visuals were. And we were a very visual band, you know, and that was the idea. That, you know, we were trying to be David Bowie. We were trying to be Alice Cooper. We were trying to be anyone that looked uh, new and, and uh, new wavy, you know. So I think... Uh, the advent of MTV happened for us absolutely perfect. And it's like, you know, when they say when all the dominoes hit one after the other, that was our career, you know, it was, we'd get to one point and be like, what's going to happen next? Something would happen like MTV suddenly boom, we'd be up to the next level. And then, you know, touring with the police, that was the next level. And wow. Everything just fell into place. It was, it was, uh, it was just the weirdest time because when you first start out, you know, you get your record deal and you think you're going to be huge and then you go out. How does this happen? You know, and it happens by magic, obviously. So, yeah, and by the happy, way, you know? it's interesting that you mentioned opening for the police because uh, I'm going to run this in the week that I'm running my Miles Copeland interview, who, of course, managed. the uh -huh. police. So you yeah. must you must have known Miles. Yeah, we didn't know him well. You know, we, we got to know the band quite well, but Miles was a manager and he wasn't always around so um huh? we we did get to know him but you know we were kind of uh don't interfere with these people you know what i mean stay out of the way yeah 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 so there was quite a bit of that going on and uh and we were just happy to be on tour we didn't really need to know anyone that well especially other people's managers and stuff like that but it you know everything on those tours was so well set up you know that that um you know you came in you did your thing you left and you didn't have a lot of downtime to get to know that many people and you, you had your own 30 crew anyway you know so you know oh. maybe I, maybe i'll run your show before uh, miles and you get to open for the police again <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll do yeah. that, but but let's talk about the the new album String Theory. I mean, you you put out Ascension in uh, 2018, and you you worked some of your greatest hits with the, uh, the symphony orchestra and made them big and beautiful. Uh, is String Theory just more of that? Is it is it different? What is String Theory? Uh, it, string Theory is yeah, like basically a continuation, but I think it actually sounds better than Ascension. Um, some of it is just songs that I did and the, the rest of the band weren't involved. Um, but like, you know, I think um, Say You Love Me, which is the first video and the first release from it, to me, that is where everything was going. 
at the time, you know, when the band actually split up, that was where things were going. And uh, I think, like I say, I think it's a, a better step forward as far as music goes that, than to what we were doing. You know, you've got to think back to that when we started, none of us could play anything. So a lot of things that happened were almost luck. You know, it's like, oh, that was a great mistake. You know, what I mean? so let's keep that in. By the time we got to Say You Love Me and all that, I knew how to write songs and um, I wanted to move in that direction. And I ended up moving in that direction on my own. So to me, to hear these songs now done um, as orchestral units, if you like, is, is for me, it's much more pleasing than the old stuff, you know? I mean, Say You Love Me was not released on a big label. So it's still new. And I think, I think it's gonna be quite interesting to see what people think of it, especially with the orchestra. And I just saw the video myself yesterday and I've, I thought it was great. So, you know, we're still on the roll, the name of the band and everything's still on a roll. Talk to me about, about the arrangements for, for an orchestral. Do, do you approach it the same way that you approached doing Iran and Modern Love is Automatic and the old stuff? Or is it a whole new mindset? It, it's, it's in a way it's different because, you know, these songs, I never expected to put them to the orchestra. So uh, I was in my studio, I mean, during lockdown, obviously. And, you know, we had an um, orchestral arranger come to my studio and we sat there and we talked about the songs. And because the, it was just me and him, we had a completely different uh, uh, kind of, tangent of, of nobody else interfering with what we wanted you know it wasn't everybody's throwing ideas in it was just me and him and I would say well could we do a bit of this there and he you know he'd score it all out right in front of me you know and then we'd, he'd play it on a little keyboard and we'd go yeah that would sound great stuff like that and then he went away and made it work with the song because some some of the things I wanted were I don't know, maybe a bit too outlandish or wouldn't quite fit in uh, musically, technically, note-wise, because I don't read music or anything like that. I just go with what sounds good to me. Um, so he tamed it, if you want, and made it fit, made it feel more orchestral. And when I heard it back, I'm like, wow, yeah, you know, Thank God it wasn't just me playing the orchestra stuff on a on a synth, you know, it's somebody that really knew orchestra stuff. When you look at Ascension and the new one, you are taking songs like Space Age Love Song and Iran and the other ones, and you're giving them that orchestral uh, thing. Uh, have you thought of making a just a purely orchestral album of just new music that you created just for the orchestra? Uh, that might be interesting, but because I'm not, um, you know, I don't read music. I don't even call myself a musician, really. Um, it's something I, you know, like to have a go at, maybe. But I'm not orchestra-minded. I'm synthesizer-minded. I'm beat-minded. You know, I'm uh, lyric-driven and stuff like that. And I, I like to keep everything simple because if it gets, if it gets to the point where you have to think about playing rather than the whole song, then I just lose it and I go on to something else. So it would be, I mean, I would, if I could stand in front of an orchestra and go, hey, violins, can you play this? And, you know, 
a kind of conducting but by, by shout, shouting if you want <laughs> instead of waving your arms around and going you do this so that might be interesting but uh it might be fun but i don't even know if i could attempt it well it could be interesting the um the first flock of seagull album comes out in 1982 we're, we're almost at 40 years do, do you have any kind of plans in 2022 to celebrate it in some way shape or form uh, there's there's plans being bandied around. You know, we may go out and do a do that first album in its entirety. That'd be great uh, on tours. Um, but the, the thing is, you know, I'm touring all the time, and I play the songs that I like to play. Right. So to actually uh, to go back 40 years to when that was all you could play because it was all you had. Um, again, it might be an interesting thing, and I'm sure that uh, that fans would like it but it may also be something that restricts you to to that era you know and and 40 years i kind of think i'm only 21 myself so how can i be playing stuff (laughs) that i wrote 40 years ago but (laughs) by the way it's amazing that it's had this staying power first of all what do you what do you thank that on like why do you think it's lasted so long and and obviously you couldn't have thought in 1982 you'll be doing interviews in 2022 talking about this, but why was this music just so special? How, how has it endured? I, Looking back, I think uh, we created an atmosphere that no one else had created. Um, I, think, I think in a way we kicked off something that was brand new. It was, um, you know, new wave was starting to happen uh but we didn't we didn't think ourselves new wave we just thought ourselves as seagulls you know and we created our own little bubble and that bubble never got burst it no, people have tried to be like us and they've tried to be uh spacey and stuff like that but i think a lot of that comes from because we couldn't play and we created this whole scene of how we did things uh, no one's been able to recreate it so it left us on our own and people that like that stay with it because they're like oh i can hear bits of it in this other band and bits of it there and bits of other bands in them but nothing else quite sounds like them and um oh, hang on. yeah a, somebody knocking on my door here because i'm just in a hotel in left Vegas. <laughs> wait a minute that, that's a that's a men at work song who can it be knocking on my door yeah yeah um well we'll break into but, that uh, later <laughs> yeah so anyway i think i think that's what what happened and people grew up with it right and you know and because they grew up with it it's ingrained in them and they just keep uh, they just keep uh, an eye out for oh that's the seagulls you know that's a flock of seagulls i yeah, kind of did that with some bands you know i mean i was a big beatles fan when i was a kid and i'm still a big beatles fan yeah so uh once you get that in your brain, it's always, you know, when your ears always pick up, yeah, it just stays in there. And those memories so. come back. Hey, Bradley, let me ask you this. And folks that have listened to my show over the years, I, I tell this story often. I had this talk once with a Doug Feger of the Knack. And I said, boy, Doug, you wrote My Sharon. It's the greatest thing ever. And he said, and he goes, Mitch, let me stop you. Yes, it was the greatest thing ever. But Mitch, it was a golden albatross. And he said, and I go, what do you mean? He goes, you don't understand. I've got the car, the pool, the house, and everybody loves my Sharona. We know that. But as a musician, it was very frustrating 
because every time I went to the record company with new music, they would say, hmm, we don't hear another My Sharona. Go try again. Did you with Iran and Space Age Love Song and some of your big hits encounter that with the radio or not the radio company, but the record company that would come and say, that's really nice, Mike, but where's Iran part two? Um, you know, up to a point you get that because record companies want hits, you know, um, but I would never really felt pressured to, to try and rewrite uh, Iran. I mean, I wrote rewrote Space Age with The More You Live, but I did that because I hadn't quite finished Space Age, if you know what I mean. I liked that, the sound of it and the atmosphere, and I, I recreated that on The More You Live. But, but I ran, no, I never really felt any pressure. I mean, there was pressure to write another hit, not to re rewrite I ran, you know. Um, I do remember the record company saying it would be nice to have another hit like I ran, which maybe was a hint, but I'm not. <laughs> wink, I'm not, wink, my, wink, wink, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not that kind of uh, of uh, writer. I, I just wake up in the morning and if I pick up something, it could be a country song, I'll write that day. I never sit down and go, I'm going to write a song. I just, they just happen. They just, they just fall on me from a great height, you know? So uh, uh, as we say, it's a chocolate box, you know, it's a uh, Montelemar today and uh, uh, Marzipan tomorrow, you know? So I, that's, to me, that's the interesting part of writing songs, not just repeating and repeating, you know? Yeah. Though, though ACDC might uh, argue with you. The Flocks, so the Flock of Seagull are currently working on not one, but two new albums, if I understand correctly. Yeah, I'm in the studio right now. I'm just taking a break because uh, we're, we're doing some shows now that lockdown is over. We're out doing shows again, which is great. That's, you know, that's why you're in a band is to go play shows and stuff like that. But I'm in the studio. I'm doing uh, I'm doing an album, which is a spacey album. And that's called Space Boy. It's the story of Space Boy who uh, comes to Earth and uh, doesn't particularly like it. <laughs> so I'm writing songs for that. And I've got about five or six for that. And then I've got a bunch of songs which are a very seagullsy. So I'm going to put out a new flock of seagulls album. Right. And hopefully that will be out. And I would say by the end of the year or early next year. And, uh, you know, it's obviously, I'm going to say it sounds fantastic, but everyone, <laughs> of <course it> does. <laughs> everyone that hears it is like, wow, this is going to be great. You know? So, uh, well, let me hear uh, it and I'll tell you the same thing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, let me let me just dig into that for a second, because you, you put out Zebrata in 2014 under your own name. Yeah. Uh, now, this one's going to go out under Flock of Seagulls. So so does does this mean that we're sort of capturing the essence of the band and 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 going back to those sounds and that moment and and giving us sort of that classic Seagull sound? Or is it just. Um, a no, no, it's definitely Seagull sounding. You know, there's definitely uh, some of the 80s Seagulls in there. And that's why I decided it should be a Seagulls uh, album, um, not a, just a Mike Score album. The, the Zebrata was just, um, I woke up one day strange and I just went, I'm going to make an album. And then I started and I just picked up the songs that were, sounded good to me on, on that day, you know, that week or whatever, and, and made them. And I really liked what happened on that. But this album is, 
is I've written, you know, three or 400 songs in my time. And I kind of went along and went, that one, and listened to those two, and another, that one. And these will all sound like a flock of seagulls, you know? Um, and like we say, 40 years, maybe it's time. Yeah, it is. By the way, uh, with the three, 400 songs you've written, do you own your own catalog or, or who, who's sort of in charge of that? Uh, well, we are just getting our original catalog back. Oh, wow. Uh, but, all, but all these new songs since about 86, I own them all. Yeah, they're, they're all mine. Oh, well, hey. So hopefully one day I can sell them. <laughs> Well, hey, listen, I, I actually know people who buy them, so maybe we'll have a, a, an off-camera right. uh, off conversation. Um, so where does the band go from here in terms of moving forward? Do you, do, do, you, um, do you just go out and tour and play the hits and put out this new music? Do you have a, a farewell tour plan? What, what sort of like, where, where, where's the period at the end of the sentence? Um, I go out on tour. We, we you know, we... We play the songs we like. We're going to obviously, uh, when this new album comes out, we'll tour that. There's the possibility of, like I say, of the, doing the, uh, the first album as a tour. Um, as far as farewell, uh, you'll have to kick me off the stage and drag me off by <laughs> screaming. I'll still have the mic and be yelling I ran and stuff like that. I don't intend to stop because I enjoy it so much. And uh, as long as, you know, people like it, why stop? I mean, you know, who wants to stop and go, I used to be, you know? Um, the thing is, it's, I think if you're in a band like this and it's your life, it's your life and it's to the end of your life, which hopefully will be another 50 years, you know? Yeah. I'm <laughs> Come open. back and say, oh, it's your 90th anniversary. And I'll go, yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, who, who was it that was out there that long? Like BB King and Chuck Berry, they, 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 they pushed it, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's no other feeling like going on stage, you know, and actually getting it right. There's no other feeling like getting it wrong sometimes on stage. Um, and, hang, you know, hanging out with your buddies and being backstage and meeting people and talking about music. And, you know, a lot of people want to know, how did you write Wishing and what was it about? And having these little conversations, that's, that's life to me, you know, life and, and traveling around. I'd rather be traveling around in a van going to gigs and enjoying that than sitting at home watching the, the NFL or something, you know. So well, uh, well, we sit and watch the NHL in uh, in Canada. Let, let me ask you, just since you mentioned songwriting, uh, I had a conversation with uh, Jim Valance the other day, and he always said, you know, you got to have a title first because that's the word that you know that's what people are going to remember when they when they sing it or whatever. Uh, how do you approach it? Is it you know you're sitting there on the keyboard going blah 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 blah, and oh that's a song, or is it like oh I've got this nice little sort of poem and let me put some music to it. How do you approach it? Um, it, it changes, but generally speaking, I'll be, um, let's say I go and start messing around on the, you know, on my computer and stuff like that. And I'll play something and I'll be thinking about something and uh, either it'll fit together or it won't. And if it doesn't, then I go off and do something else. If it does, I generally spend all day just messing around um, I never sit there and go, oh, now I can put an A minor in there. That will sound great. I just go, I just go like this on the keyboard, basically. <laughs> and things That's kind of how I play, too. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, but... and then I get an idea for lyrics, you know, and, and right. I just 
throw it down and if it if the song uh, wants to it will write itself i i don't write songs songs write themselves and they come to me out of nowhere and uh i'm just lucky enough that, that to be able to catch them yeah um let me ask you just, uh, and, and I'll end on this, in terms of, of the sound of the, of the band in the early days, you know, that you were really pushing the technology. Yes, we had bands like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and stuff doing the keyboard stuff, but you went in a different direction. How did you choose to do that rather than just bass, guitar, drums, uh, you know, four on the floor, classic? Talk to me about the technology and saying, yep, we're going we're gonna to push this and be different. Um. I don't think we knew we were really pushing it. You know, like I said, we couldn't play. But you invented I mean, a new I'm, sound. I mean, it really was a new yeah, sound. I'm a synth player because I couldn't play a guitar, you know. <laughs> and synths were uh, monophonic back then. So I just had to use one finger. But I could turn a knob and go, Ooh, that sounds really cool. And then, you know, we would say stuff like, well, I'm just going to hold this note, Paul, and that's kind of boring. So can you just kind of jangle along on your guitar, but don't get in the way of me trying to sing this. So over, over six months or so, that's our technique that we developed. And, you know, and my brother playing drums, it was just like, Ali, just keep them drums going. You know, um, he wasn't going to be uh, a... Uh, fancy drummer that wasn't in at the time right. you know in vogue at the time was like dance beats so just keep that beat you know uh, let's get some uh, uh, synthesizer sounding drums and all that technology was just arriving then so we were like grabbing it to fill holes in our songs and uh, you know when, when you got a band like us that, that rehearsed eight hours a night every night for i don't know six months maybe even longer it, it where, like I say, we created our own bubble and that sound was in the bubble. And we'd go hear other bands and go, they don't have that sound. They're not in our bubble, you know. So They were jangling the wrong stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that bubble we took with us wherever we went and people were like, wow, I've never seen or heard a bubble like that before. Um, and we saw some great bands, you know, and we wanted to uh, emulate them, but we couldn't because we couldn't play. Like we saw Simple Minds and we saw... Yeah. Uh, no, uh, Jim Kerr, man, what what a talent! Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. But we were like, well, it's not amazing. We can't so, do that. So, let me else. get this straight: that you put the songs together like this. I'll push this button. You jangle that. You do the dance beat. Is that is that was that the creative process? I'll button. Yeah. You jangle. Yeah. You dance beat. <laughs> but, button jangle follow, beat, <laughs> uh, and then I'll try and throw some. Oh. Lyrics in as well <laughs> the secret to the success that's 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 for, uh, terrific uh my fans always like the gear talk so what was the keyboards back then what was the setup for you back then um keyboard wise when we first started out i had a korg ms10 which was the, the basically one of the cheapest synths you could get and i had uh, two pedals called clone theories and I put it out of the MS-10 into the first clone theory and into the second one. And that made the synth sound come alive. You know, the chorusing and the way those pedals worked. Um, it gave it a lot of bite and a lot of growl, but also power. Um, and that, that actually created a platform for the guitar to sit on top of. So it didn't have to be too fancy because it was a very gripping kind of, thick sound you know and then um we use simmons drums a lot because everybody simmons, did back then 
yeah, because you didn't have to tune them. You know, it was right. a knob, you tuned it with a knob, not like, oh my God, what's it going to sound like? Uh, it, basically standard bass guitar, but with a couple of effects. And um, uh, gear-wise, Paul used a Kramer guitar that was an alloy neck and all that, which was had a, and he used a, a penny for a pick, which gave it a metallic kind of edge. Uh, two JC-120s, which um, people know what they are, obviously. Yeah. And uh, two Roland, uh, I think they were 201 Echo units. That's how we got that spread Echo thing. Um, let's see, what else? The second keyboard I got was a Korg Delta, which is when I first discovered chords. And I'm like, I need something that plays chords. And I got a Delta, which, because I loved, Korgs had a sound, they had a filter sound which was just like anything else I played didn't have that sound. So I was a real Korg fan. Um, well, here, let me ask you this. When, when the first big check rolls in and you get to buy that piece of gear you always want, what was that piece of gear that you went out and said, yeah, now I got the money. I'm buying this. What, what was that, that piece where you just went, yeah, I can buy this. Well, now. I actually bought a Jupiter 8, which uh, yeah. got an absolutely fantastic synth. Um, I wanted to get a Jupiter 4, but the Jupiter 8 came out right as I had the money to buy something. So I went completely over the top and got the Jupiter 8. If I'd have really had the money, I would have bought a PPG. Um, and they, uh, you would have lost me forever in that because it was so complicated. So it was it was quite good that, the, you know, Jupiter 8 is a not a really complex synth. It's fairly simple. It's... Uh, it had presets, which obviously, once you get that sound, you never want to lose it. Whereas on like an MS-10, every second of the day and night you're using it, you're turning a knob just to get that. Is it exactly the same? Is it? Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, since we're more than since they did everything. So uh, it's like now I use I use a Roland Phantom and it just does everything, you know, so uh yeah, uh, in, in they, they really they really do everything. You know, one of my, uh, my one of my whoa moments was when uh, was it Don Airy or was it uh, I think it was Don Airy who said that he uh, he played all the bass parts on a Judas Priest album because uh, Ian Hill wasn't there. And I was just like, you did what? <laughs> Don't do that. You can't do that. Yeah, yeah they do do everything, you know. Right. Yeah. And well, um, that's the cool thing now about songwriting and you have a couple of those synths and a computer, you can emulate anything, you know, orchestras, uh, you can get a little app. Now, I love PPGs and stuff, and now it's an app. It's a little app. You just pull it up and there it all is. So it's incredibly crazy. Um, I wouldn't like to be trying to be a synth player these days because where do you start? You know? Yeah. There's I too mean, much. I start when I started, there was two choices. It was a little Yamaha or a little Korg, you know, and now it's like everything is out there. Where do you start? I, I don't know. I'll, you know, the, um, the keyboard player for Dream Theater, Jordan Rudess, he's got a whole bunch of apps that are just so really cool where you can yeah. make, anyway, stuff to check out. Uh, String Theory, folks, uh, coming out soon. And uh, on that, Mike, uh, merci. Always a pleasure. We, we've done this for... 15 years now, I guess. It's always a pleasure. Is it really 15 years? <laughs> 15 or 20, yeah. I mean, it's been, 
I'm trying to think. I was doing a, a thing called the Mitch Minute at Magic 100 in Ottawa, and that must have been 2003, 2004. Wow. So it's been a long time. I've forgotten those years ever existed. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, now, now we have to worry about the New Year's. And, of course, uh, String Theory uh, out soon. I will post and uh, tweet out the links. And uh, merci. Always a Thank pleasure. You. Great. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye-bye now. Bye. Great. That was great. Thank you. Thank you.